Hey there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and here we are at the Gate of Purgatory, or close to it. We're in Keto 9 of Purgatorio on the podcast Walking with Tante. We're only going to do the first 12 lines. I realize this is really moving slowly through it, but these first 12 lines of Canto 9 are so difficult that it feels important to me to call them out and let you see the difficulty that lies in them. I worked a very long time on this passage, and I'm still not at a place where I feel I fully get what's going on. I'll explain all of that as we move forward. Let me remind you that we've come through the eight cantos of Ante Purgatory. Dante never calls it that, but we do. That is the lower slopes of the great mountain of Purgatory. We've seen all sorts of figures, excommunicated souls, lazy souls, negligent rulers. Dante's been cleaned up early on by a reed. He's met Cato and then been admonished by Cato. He's heard his own poetry sung. He's heard Antiphon's sung. He's heard very classic Christian hymns. All that already in the opening bits of Purgatorio. And now we land at the canto that has the gate, the formal gate of Purgatory itself. This is my English translation. You can find it on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can read along or better, you can continue the conversation there and you might well want to continue the conversation about these tough opening 12 lines of Canto 9 of Purgatorio. The concubine of ancient Tithonus was starting to glow white on the balcony of the east, as she did when she got up from her sweet lover's arms. Her forehead glittered with jewels, which were positioned in the shape of the cold animal that strikes people with its tail. From where we were, night had made it up two of the steps it climbs so that the wings for the third were already flagging when I, who still had something from Adam about me and overcome with sleep, lay back in the grass where all five of us were already seated. Trust me, it's enough for us to handle in this podcast. Just to remind you, the five of us here would be Virgil Sordello, our pilgrim Dante, Nino Visconti, and Corrado Malaspina. The five in the very beautiful floral dale of the negligent rulers. I want to talk about overcome with sleep first because it's the most human part of this passage. And then I want to pass on to this incredibly complex classical structure that opens Canto 9. I want to offer you some traditional solutions that many scholars have advanced. And then, (laughs) just because I've got enough hubris in me to do it, I want to offer you my own interpretation of what is going on in this absolute morass of classical imagery. As I said, I want to start with the very end. It's that bit, I, who still had something from Adam about me and 
overcome with sleep, lay back in the grass where all five of us were already seated. This seems to me to be another node of the great humanity of Purgatorio. The pilgrim sleeps. In fact, the pilgrim is going to sleep three times. <laughs> Get this. In Canto 9, Canto 18, and Canto 27, it seems... <laughs> Seems as if somebody's planning that out, that the pilgrim is going to fall asleep in cantos of three, the Trinitarian number, the ninth, 18th, and 27th cantos. <laughs> yes, indeed. Dante is in control of his material. Still, and nonetheless, let's just stop and talk about sleep for a minute. This is the second time sleep's occurred in the poem. You might feel, having crossed through Inferno, that there was no sleep, but there was Early on in Inferno, Canto 1 at lines 10 through 12, what, for us, that's four years ago? Dante told us he was so overcome with sleep, he didn't know how he had gotten off the straight way or the correct way. There's a moment of sleep before the poem opens. Dante seems to re-find himself in this wood, but before that... He apparently fell asleep or was asleep in some way. Now, most of us take that sleep as metaphoric, as in I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. I wasn't paying attention to the things I was supposed to be paying attention to. So I fell asleep and got lost. You know, there's a, what, symbolism there. Nonetheless, maybe we should take it as real. The pilgrim, before the poem opens, has fallen asleep. This would give us a way that the poem opens in medias race, at least on past the actual beginning of things, which would be that falling asleep and thus losing the right way. But anyway, that moment of sleep has been in the poem and now it returns. But here it returns quite differently. There, it's all about terror and fear and losing the way. Here, this is falling asleep, um, dare I say it, among friends. After that great hymn to liberality from Corrado Malaspina, Dante the Pilgrim falls asleep, and that has to be interconnected. There's a safety here, not just a safety in numbers, but a safety in the entire ethical makeup of these people, including, and dare I say it, the damned Virgil. There's got to be a way that that initial sleep is scary, whereas this sleep is reassuring, or so you would think. But if you remember in our read-through, the dream he's about to have gets quite terrifying. We'll save that for future episodes of the podcast. But for the moment, it seems very reassuring to fall asleep here amongst friends. Now we get to the hard stuff, <laughs> the classical imagery in the passage. I'm going to go back to line one. The concubine of ancient Tithonus was starting to glow white on the balcony of the east as she did when she got up from her sweet lover's arms. Tithonus was a prince of Troy. He was the son, or depending on which legend or story you read, the brother of King Laomedon, that is the king of Troy. Tithonus is either the brother or the uncle of to Ganymede. And Ganymede, if you remember our read-through, will also occur in this passage. So we should think that Dante probably knows what he's doing here, setting up Tithonus, 
Ganymede lies ahead of us. This is the first major problem in the passage, and I'm going to have to explain the story to you. Tithonus, this prince of Troy, fell in love in the Greek story with Aos, the goddess of the dawn. Aurora is her Roman name, and Dante would know Aurora because Dante probably is picking up this story via Virgil's Aeneid. In the fourth book of the Aeneid at lines 584 through 585, there's a reference to Aurora getting up from her saffron-scented or saffron-colored bed, the saffron bed of, it would be, Tithonus. What is the story here? Okay, the story is that this prince of Troy, Tithonus, falls in love with this goddess, she then pleads on high that Tithonus be made immortal. He indeed is made immortal, but she forgets something, as is typical with these things. She forgets to ask for eternal youth. So Tithonus just keeps aging, and it gets more and more tragic because she's the dawn. She gets out of bed, saddles up her horses or attaches her horses to her chariot, actually, and rides out to announce the new day and the coming of the sun. She is a symbol of youth. Her entire existence is bound up in new life, and she's married this very old man. Here's the problem. Aos in the Greek or Aurora in the Roman mythology is not the concubine of Tithonus. She's the, we would say, wife of Tithonus. So why does Dante turn the dawn into a concubine? That's the first problem that everybody has to solve. I should also tell you that in many stories, but Dante may not know these stories, Tithonus ages and ages and ages until he becomes a cicada. He gets so old and withered, he becomes a cicada, and cicadas are known to sing that rattly song at dawn. If Dante knows that part of the mythology and there's no evidence he does, then this is a further and wildly beautiful development in the canto. Because if you remember, the canto ends with voices in sweet polyphony with an organ playing. So we have the rattling noise of cicadas at the dawn here with Tithonus and then this beautiful organ music at the end. But again, I just want to say there's no evidence to say that Dante knows that complete mythology. So we might have to set that aside. The real problem here is why is Dawn the concubine of Tithonus, and is it, in fact, Dawn? Well, maybe not, because here's the second problem. It's at lines four through six. Her, that is this concubine of ancient Tithonus, we take it to be Aos, or as Dante would know her with her Roman name, Aurora, her forehead glittered with jewels, which were positioned in the shape of the cold animal. Now, this is very strange, a fredo animal, a cold animal that strikes people with its tail. Now, if we just think in terms of the zodiac, that could only mean Scorpio, right? I mean, what else could it be? What other animal in the zodiac would strike people with its tail? Here's the problem. Scorpio is not in the sky at 
dawn in March. The sign that's in the sky is Pisces. So wait a minute. I thought Dawn was getting up, leaving her old lover's bed, her increasingly old lover's bed, and starting to glow in the east. But then you're telling me that Scorpio's up, but Scorpio's a night sign, not a dawn sign. And Pisces is the sign of dawn. Wait, what? What are you saying here? And we should also note that while there's a lot of commentary about cold and wafredo animal here as cold-blooded and scorpions as cold-blooded, true, we know that. Mm, Question whether Dante knows that. What Dante does know is a passage from Brunetto Latini who basically makes the claim that all poisons are cold by nature, that their nature is to lack warmth, and that's how they work, according to Latini's quote-unquote science. And that's probably the reference for Fredo here is from Brunetto Latini. But poisonous strikes people with his tail, sounds dangerous. Doesn't sound like the dawn, does it? It sounds like there's a little bit of danger here. And Scorpio, what? Wait, wait, wait. Why would Dante mess up the zodiac signs when he seems so careful about them with Aries straddling the zodiac just a few lines before this in Canto 8? Big problem, right? Oh, well, there's another one. Let's go on to the passage. We're moving on to line seven to nine. From where we were, night had made it up two of the steps it climbed so that its wings for the third were already flagging. What time is it? Oh, this is the $24,000 question. If the night is 12 hours long at the spring equinox, that's an assumption, but let's give it, then we can presume that the sun sets about six in the evening. And then it goes 12 hours and the sun rises at about six in the morning at about. Okay, great. Well, we'll accept that. So what does this mean? Is the night divided into thirds? Okay, if the night is divided into thirds, because it says it came up two steps and the steps for, you know, the, the motion toward the third was already flagging a bit. If the night is divided into thirds, that means each part of the night is four hours, which means it's eight hours ahead of six o'clock, which would make it two in the morning, right? And it says it's flagging. So we assume we're beyond two in the morning and moving on to the third step, which would be from two to six in the morning and sunrise. And we do have a reference to Aurora getting up here. Is that what it's meant? That we're past two in the morning and somewhere nearing closer to six in the morning and sunrise? Or, (laughs) or is the night divided into quarters? Which means it's beyond midnight because every quarter would be three hours, two three-hour segments from six o'clock would make it midnight. So down the third step is flagging. So we're somewhere between midnight and three in the morning, which means we're in the darkest part of the night. That seems logical for going to sleep. And yet we're told that Dawn is lightning in the east, growing white. I should just add to that when the concubine of Tithonus starts to glow white on the balcony of the east, the word there is really descriptive. And it's almost as if she's putting on that white foundation makeup 
that is so popular in the high middle ages for women? Well, okay, so she's getting up and putting on her makeup, so we must be near dawn. So how could we be after midnight and going on till three in the morning, which are the darkest hours of the night? That makes better sense for sleeping, but no sense for dawn. Do you see what's happening here? Tithonus, Scorpio, and the time of night are all at odds with each other. It's distinctly messed up, and many people have tried to fix it. Here's how. Many scholars claim that Dante is mixing up the time in Italy and or Jerusalem and across the globe in purgatory. So if I had to interpret it this way, the claim here is that from the perspective of either the Italian peninsula or Jerusalem, and I know there's a time differential there, but let's just pretend for a moment for the sake of ease we're close enough. From that perspective, it's coming on toward dawn, which means that over here in purgatory, across the globe and around the globe and at the bottom, it's really in the dark hours of the night. If dawn is just ginning up over there, it's dark over here. Here's the problem with this. How do I know that we're making reference to either the Italian peninsula or Jerusalem in this passage? How am I supposed to know that other than by some kind of complicated set of deductions? Still, that doesn't answer the question of the concubine of Tithonus. Why does Dante change her from a wife to a concubine? But okay, this is the way many people explain it. And so while it's dawning back over there, Scorpio is up in the sky. Here, it's night. And thus, they put a lot of emphasis on line seven. From where we were, night had made it up two of the steps it climbs. And of course, they're going to divide night into quarters and say, back over here in purgatory, this is where Dante's cueing us that we're changing locations. Back over here in purgatory, it's the dead of night, and I fell asleep. That's okay, but again, the passage is a little more complex than that and a little more muddled than that. And furthermore, I don't know why Dante wouldn't give me a sign somehow and say, back in Rome, as the concubine of Tithonus was getting up, then all we'd have to worry about is why is he naming this figure a concubine, which gets us to the second most common solution to this passage. Dante is talking about the moon and not the sun. So the concubine of ancient Tithonus is the moon. His wife is dawn and the moon is rising, which is why, and this is a little funky, but why Scorpio is there. Most scholars now come down on this explanation. Dante has created a concubine for Tithonus, and Dante is showing us the moon rising. It's a little funky with the zodiac and the position of Scorpio, but okay, we'll give it to him. And that Dante is saying to us, we're in the depths of the night. The big problem with this interpretation is there is absolutely no classical precedent for it. Nowhere does Tithonus get a concubine, and nowhere is that concubine the moon. In other words, scholars, critics, dantistas have had to make that up in order to make sense of this passage. But if that's the case, then Dante is creating mythology out of whole cloth, which is getting 
pretty close to my explanation. As I told you, Ganymede does occur later in this passage. We've already read through Canto 9, and we heard about Ganymede, and Dante compares himself to Ganymede in the dream that is ahead. And if we accept that Dante knew about cicadas, the noise in this passage, the noise of cicadas starting up at dawn, is answered by the organ and the polyphony at the end, which means that this whole canto is wrapping in on itself. And I think that may be nigh unto a solution that makes sense for me. Let me explain. I told you we've moved on from the classical landscape, and in fact, we may have finally passed out of the classical landscape itself. Classical authors can no longer offer a map for the afterlife. Early on in comedy, they indeed do. And Dante is taking his cues from Virgilian sources. He's taking his cues from other classical writers. He's writing about the afterlife in such a way that they can control not only the literary illusions, but the very landscape itself. And thus, we have the Elysian fields referenced in the circle of limbo in Inferno. And I do think that that is in fact resonant with the Elysian feels there for the great philosophers. I think Dante wants to start us out on a high note, give us the Elysian feels, the best that hell can offer, and then show us the great descent, which, as we know, having come through Inferno, is actually the great ascent. But, oh, that's for the past. <laughs> <laughs> That's for the past in those other episodes. Okay, fair enough. That's all that. However, here we have yet another reference to the Elysian Fields, this Dale of the Negligent Rulers. And in fact, this reference to the Elysian Fields makes much more sense in Purgatorio than the one in Inferno. Here's why. Because these negligent rulers are in the best place in the afterlife that the classical world can get you to. And thus, when we are in this Elysian field landscape of the negligent rulers with its beautiful aromas and flowers and herbage and grass, we see the setting of the four stars that represent the cardinal virtues or the classical virtues and the rising of the three Christian virtues in the three stars or the three theological virtues, love, hope, and faith. The Elysian Fields makes much more sense here, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but to say that on top of Mount Purgatory is the Garden of Eden, and that we're balanced here at the end of the cantos before the Gate of Purgatory with a reference to an Edenic-like landscape before we get to the actual Eden at the top of Purgatory makes complete structural sense. I think that Dante intended Limbo in Inferno to be an Elysian reference, but then I think he got here and he found out better place for it, and he dropped it here, and it makes much more sense. But just because then we are exiting the best of the classical afterlife here before the gate of purgatory doesn't mean we're exiting the classical world. In fact, it's going to come roaring at us harder as it does in this passage. And this is what's so fascinating to me. Dante shows us that he is willing to play with the classical imagery. We are no longer locked into the Virgilian 
or Lucan takes of the afterlife, or as we will see ahead of us, the statious notions of the afterlife. We're not locked in any of that. Instead, and this is my big point, the classical imagery can become the subject of play. Here in this passage, we have this gorgeous play in which Dante is basically mucking around with classical imagery. He's not making a hash of it. In fact, I think the pilgrim falls asleep sometime toward dawn. I think night has elapsed with the angels and the serpents. It was coming onto sunset as they came up to the Dale of the Negligent Rulers, then they passed down into it, then we had the nightly spectacle of the angel and serpents, then we had the discussions with Visconti and with Corrado, and now it's, you know, it's getting on in the evening, and the dawn is just a little bit starting to break in the east. Does Dante want Scorpio here? Of course he does. Is Scorpio part of the dawn in March? No, it's not. But Dante wants it here because he wants danger here. He wants us to see that the gems on Aurora's crown are those stars that are rising and setting. And in fact, there's a little bit of danger in the cold animal that strikes people here because the dream ahead of us is very dangerous and it gets very insane with its ravaging and its fire and its, you know, unbelievable pain that wakes Dante up because he ignites in the dream. I think we're supposed to see that here. And in fact, the cold animal here is going to reference directly into the heat of the fires of the dream ahead. This animal would strike you with a cold poison. But what Dante's going to get hit with is a dream of fire and hmm, a dream of Ganymede. So I think the pilgrim falls asleep toward dawn. And I think that Dante shifts all sorts of imagery around to fit him. And here, the concubine of Tithonus is important because ultimately we've come out of questions of marital fidelity and questions of good wives and bad wives and Corrado and Visconti, as we discussed endlessly in Canto 8. And here we come out into a not perfect union, which is part of the classical world, that not perfect union, a concubine for Tithonus, not a wife, because we're going to enter into the Christian concept, which is much more the bride of Christ and the church. This is helping us play around with the classical imagery, play deeply and intensely with it, change it to suit our needs, or let me put it another way, let Dante change it to suit his needs as we watch this shifting ground under us. And don't forget, I think the tenor of this canto is that it escapes you. So that the first initial bits of Canto 9 are very difficult to decode, no surprise, given the fact that we're going to end the canto knowing that some words you hear and some words you don't. One more time, this incredibly complicated passage, lines 1 through 12 of Canto 9 of Purgatorio. The concubine of ancient Tithonus was starting to glow white on the balcony of the east as she did when she got up from her sweet lover's arms. Her forehead glittered with jewels, which were positioned in the shape of the cold animal that strikes people with its tail. From where we were, night had made it up two of the steps it climbs so that the wings for the third were already flagging when I who still had something from Adam about me and overcome with sleep, lay back in the grass where all five of us were already seated. 
And now starts the dream. Oh, man, now starts the fun. If that was fun, playing around with classical imagery, wait till you see what's ahead of us. Playing around with classical imagery to make a Christian point. Playing around with, oh, gosh, dare I say it, homosexual love to make a divine point about love. Oh, it's all lying right in front of us. And it's going to get denser and more difficult by the minute. This is the fun of Purgatorio, and I can't wait to get there. Subscribe, rate, like, do all those things you need to do to help the podcast. I really appreciate it. And otherwise, stay tuned. (laughs) I sound like an old TV announcer. Stay tuned, because we got more ahead this fantastic first dream of comedy in the next episodes of Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough, and I'll see you then. Hey there, if you've made it out to the back of this podcast, let me just say that I would like to ask for a little help. As you may know, this podcast has been on the air now for over three years, and I never thought it would last this long. I intended to walk through comedy, but I didn't really actually believe that this would all happen. It's rather overwhelmed my life, and I have turned down sponsor offers for the podcast because I want it to be exactly what I want it to be without anyone telling me what to do. I don't want notes from producers. So given that... I'm asking for help. There's a PayPal link in both the podcast player and in the show notes. You can find that on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. That link will take you again to a PayPal account and you can donate to keep this podcast working. I would say that a buck, a dollar, a Canadian dollar, a euro, a pound per episode that you've enjoyed, that would be terrific. Listen, 50 cents, half a quid per episode that you've enjoyed. A small donation helps me then pay the royalties for the music, the royalties for the sound effects. It helps me pay my streaming service fees, my hosting service fees, my editing fees. It helps in all of those ways, in all of the ways that this podcast has overwhelmed me. Thanks so much. And if not, no worries. We're going to still walk with Dante.